if you notice, the very top cover of the papers you got this morning um, are our disciplines. And usually, at least on Thursdays, I don't know what you guys do here, but we usually like take your notebooks out and flip them over and we read all the disciplines on the back. But we're going to do it differently today because I am an elementary teacher by occupation. I can't avoid doing a quiz. <laughs> so um, the front page has the Wellspring Purpose, Disciplines, and our verse, Proverbs 4.23, written on them, but there are some blanks. So do your best. We're going to take a few minutes. Try to fill them in the best you can. Don't cheat. It's, it's not a real quiz. Um, we just want to be familiar with our disciplines and our purpose and our verse, so um, we're going to go through them together. So if you don't know, it's, it's okay. It's really okay. We're going to go through them all together. I'll give you guys a few minutes. All right, I'll start going through them. It's okay if you're not done. Um, so feel free to yell it out if you know. Um, the purpose of Wellspring is to equip, good, and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. It's funny because on Thursday, everyone knew gospel. That was like, everyone got that. All right, so discipline one is the heart. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. Very good. Um, discipline two is the home. The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. And then discipline three is ministry with a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority. The faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Again, gospel. <laughs> all right. And Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. Awesome. So today I want to talk about a different aspect of shepherding our hearts and, um, this focuses mostly on discipline one, what I'm going to talk about, but since they're all so connected, it will spill over to discipline two and three. So I'm a sinner and I sin. You're a sinner and you sin. <laughs> By our nature, we're sinners. Um, we've been given new hearts, um, but we still live in this flesh, so we're still going to sin. And we aim to fight that sin. We aim to put off the deeds of the flesh, but until we're in glory with Jesus... We're going to sin. So when we sin, then what do we do next? We need to repent. And let's talk about what repentance is. Repentance is multifaceted. It is being sorry, but it's also being changed. Um, we can be sorry about our sin and still not be changed. And we can even change our actions or our words and not truly be grieved over our sin. And neither of those things are repentance. So... Um, Often, when we're caught or embarrassed by a sin, we can feel sorry. But sometimes that feeling of sorry um, can lead to some greater sin, like sneaking around or making excuses or becoming callous to our sin. But as believers, hopefully when we are shown our sin through God's word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, sometimes through a family member or a friend, um, and when we realize that we've sinned, 
we feel sorry and we feel guilty. And things like being caught or embarrassed or feeling guilty, they're means of God's grace in our lives. And God uses the people around us and the circumstances around us to show us our sin. Um, but feeling guilty is not the same thing as repentance. So what does our repentance toward God need to look like? How do we go from sorry to repentance? So I have six ways here that we're going to go through really quickly. When sin is revealed, be thankful. Um, even as we're sinning against God, God's using those moments to show us the true nature of our hearts. Be thankful for that. Uh, don't forget those moments of feeling guilty and commit to walking in repentance. Number two is remember the gospel. If you're a believer in Christ, you're justified. You've been forgiven and you're loved. Remember that blue chart that we get at the beginning of the year? You can use this to shepherd your heart through repentance. Remind yourself of who you are in Christ. And, and the truths that are in there, the truths that are true about us, should only spur us on to fight our sin with God's strength. And it's never an excuse to overlook or to excuse our sin away. Number three is pray for God's help. So confess. Confess your sin to God. Thank him for showing you your sin. And ask him for his help to help fight your sin well. Number four, remember that it's God's word that changes our hearts. So use biblical language. Look to God's word to define your sin. Don't let the world define your sin as if it's a problem that you have no control over. And see your sin through Jesus' eyes. Dig deep into God's word. And while you're there, seek the true nature of your sin. Maybe write out Proverbs. It's a good place to start. If you're struggling with, let's say, the sin of anger, go through Proverbs and write out every verse and every reference that has to do with anger. Or study the lists of sin throughout the Bible. There's quite a few of them. We're going to turn to Romans 1 together right now. And we're going to talk about one of those lists. Romans 1, verses 29 through 31. There's a few different places in God's word that there are lists of sins. Galatians, Revelation, but we're just going to read this one this morning. Romans 1, verses 29 through 31 says, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, Foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. So, I don't know if you noticed this, <clears throat> but God's word puts disobedience, gossip, and envy, sins that might be really easy to minimize in our own lives, in the same list as murderers and haters of God. That's how God sees our sin. We want to we see it that same way because it's for those sins that Jesus had to die. So number five is put on. So Ephesians 4 22 through 24 tells us that a believer is one who has put off their old self, which belongs to their former manner of life, and to be renewed in the spirit of their mind to put on the new self created in the likeness of God. So we put off our old sin practices of anger or laziness or bitterness, and we put something else on instead. And we find what we're supposed to put on are listed in Galatians 5, the fruit of the spirit. It's probably very familiar to most of you. 
love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So where we once had anger, we put on peace. And where we have repented of laziness, we put on self-control. And where we've repented of bitterness, love. So the sixth one is pray again. Always keep praying. Thank God for truth from his word, for salvation, and that we have the ability to change because we are believers. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, through God's word, we have the ability to change. So brokenness over sin is part of victory over sin. It brings us back to the cross, and it brings us back to Jesus' victory over sin. So as women who are studying God's word, who are shepherding our hearts, we must shepherd our hearts through biblical repentance. And it will happen every single day, maybe every single hour, quite possibly every single minute of the day. We need to practice biblical repentance. All right, so let's get started with our lesson this morning. We are in Proverbs 14. Um, We're going to be looking from the entire book of Proverbs this morning. Um, Most of this book was written by King Solomon. He was the son of David. He was king over Israel. Um, In 1 Kings 3, we read of an account where the Lord appears to Solomon in a dream, and he tells him that he can ask for anything that he wants. And Solomon asks for wisdom. And um, the actual translation is that he asks for a discerning mind, which, so Solomon is considered to be the wisest man to have ever lived. He has written 29 chapters in Proverbs, and they are full of wisdom for us to learn from. So this phrase, discerning mind, that Solomon asks for, it literally means a listening heart or a hearing heart, which it, it means having a heart that hears with a mind to obey. So it's very similar to what a mother means when she says to her children, listen to me. It means obey and hear what I have to say. So Solomon asks the Lord for wisdom. He asks the Lord for discernment, and God gives it to him in abundance, and we can benefit from that. It's written in God's word. So a proverb, this is lowercase p proverb, is a short saying that just states a general truth. So you've probably heard of proverbs before, like, give a man a fish and he eats for a day, but teach a man to fish and he eats for a lifetime. And then I came across this one while I was researching this, and and it might be my favorite lowercase proverb. The swiftest horse can't overtake a word once spoken. Good reminder. But we know that Proverbs from the Bible, capital P, capital P Proverbs, are inspired by God. So we must read them, and we must study them, and learn from them. So the book of Proverbs is a book of poetry. It's not poetry like we're used to, roses are red, violets are blue. Um, It's Hebrew poetry, and Hebrew poetry was written in a development of ideas in an inventive way, so it's not a magical formula. Um, Proverbs teach wisdom, but they also require wisdom so that we can interpret them and apply them correctly. Uh, The book of Proverbs contrasts wisdom and folly. If you read it through, you'll see that. It's it's, um, a big theme there, and uh, again, I'm a teacher by occupation. So do you remember when you were in school what a Venn diagram is? It's the two big circles and they overlap in the middle. And on one side you write like all the characteristics about topic A and in this part all characteristics about topic B and where they overlap, the things that they have in common. Wisdom and folly are nothing like that. They can't exist in a Venn diagram. They have nothing in common. So let's talk about what wisdom is. This is going to be the first blank on your outline. 
<clears throat> wisdom is skill for living in the fear of Yahweh. Wisdom for skill for living in the fear of Yahweh. So Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. I was reading um, a book called God's Wisdom in Proverbs by a man named Dan Phillips, and um, I like this quote, so I want to read it to you this morning. God-centered wisdom will encompass all our endeavors, including excellence in relationships, in personal pursuits, in finances, child-rearing, the whole shooting match. But the constant backdrop of these living skills will be the imperative of a life lived in reverence for God, in conscious application of his revealed wisdom, and dedicated to promoting his glory. So then in contrast to a wise person, a fool is a stupid, wicked, vile, impious person. But we know that there are degrees of folly, ranging from the still reachable naive to the hardened scoffer. And I think we would all agree that we want to be the wise person. So how do we do that? How do we get this wisdom? Proverbs 1-7 again. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So we must fear the Lord. I did a little research on fear. Catsardophobia. It's the morbid and irrational fear of cockroaches. I might have that one. Um, And then this one, melissophobia, is the fear of bees or bee stings. It's great. Um, But that's not the kind of fear that we're talking about here. This fear that we're talking about is not an emotion. It's fear directed toward Yahweh, directed toward the Lord. God has revealed himself to us in his word. So if we want true wisdom, we have to start with God. We have to have a living, vital relationship with that God. And I think it's easy to say the fear of God without really truly understanding what we mean. The fear of God is produced by the word of God. The word of God reveals him, his mind, and his ways to us. So we must approach God's word with humility. And humility here isn't just thinking less of ourselves than we should, but it's thinking as much of God as we should. And genuine humility starts with me comparing myself to the infinite God. Um, Derek Kidner is another author that has studied Proverbs, and he wrote that the fear of Yahweh is that filial relationship which, in the most positive of senses, puts us securely in our place and God in his. Now, we each hold in front of us, some of you have it on your phones, (laughs) some of you have a book, the completed canon of scripture. So why do we often treat it like it's insufficient? If, If wisdom starts with the fear of Yahweh, and the fear of Yahweh starts with the word of God, then where should we go every single day, every single time we need wisdom? God's word. All right, let's look at Proverbs 14 now. It's written at the top of your notes. Um, But feel free to turn there if you would like to. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. So home, this is our discipline too, is the first place where we display what the gospel has done in us because of Christ's work on the cross. But it's also the first place where we see that we must fight 
for that gospel influence in our lives. And daily, there are new opportunities to live out gospel truths. And all we have to do is open our eyes every morning and get out of bed. So, like we learned before, Proverbs is poetry. So we need to discern what Solomon is saying here. He's not talking about physically building a house. We're not expected to get a hammer and nails out. But instead, in this verse, the word build is referring to caring for our household and causing it to flourish. So it's not simply rearranging furniture or following the latest Pinterest trend or just doing whatever Joanna Gaines says. The wise woman blesses those whom God has placed in her household. It could be parents. It could be siblings. It could be a husband. It could be children. It could be roommates. But a wise woman will be intentional to love and to do good to those she lives with and she works with all diligence. She seeks to profit those that are in her home. So in contrast, the foolish woman, she tears her house down, even if unintentionally. She may be given to contentiousness, or to ungratefulness, or to bitterness. She might use her words as a demolition tool, and it will destroy the people that are most precious to her. Through the grace of God, and without deserving so, we have been redeemed. And if you have placed your faith in Jesus, Christ, God has imputed Christ's righteousness to you. But even though we're redeemed, we're still in that mixed condition. We talked about this earlier. We're in the midst of progressive renewal. Again, that blue chart, pull it out and review it. We still sin, we all do, and one day when we're in heaven, we will be in an unmixed perfect condition, praise the Lord. But for the time being, we know that there's times when we still look and we still act and we still sound like that foolish woman. And I like the analogy of a cup of coffee. When you have your cup of coffee, what spills out of it when it gets bumped? Coffee. So what spills out of your heart when you get bumped reveals what's in your heart. And whatever is in your heart is going to come out. And that residue of sin, it's going to be revealed. So what can we do to fight that? We must be diligent to renew our minds with scripture. It's so easy to let the voices of the world creep in. There are voices that say, you deserve whatever it may be, or moms need me time. But the more we know God and the more we know his word, the more we can be a doer of the word. That's how we build up our homes rather than destroying them. Jesus died and rose from the dead, so that can be a reality. And this building of our homes has a domino effect, right? Because the more we build up our own home, the more we build up each other's homes, and then the body of Christ. So I don't know how many of you are familiar. This is a few years ago. Um, just north of the 202 and west of the 101, there was a big cement building. They had started to build something, and then the recession happened, and it was vacant for like eight or ten years. Just this big cement structure. And then one day, someone bought the land, and... It's now a Panera. Um, but they bought the <laughs> land, and they brought in this huge wrecking ball. And people were lining the streets to watch this. And there was this big wrecking ball on a crane, and the crane operator dropped it, and it, big chunks of concrete went flying everywhere. And he, he did it repeatedly until the whole building came down. And that might be how you're envisioning how the foolish woman is, like a wrecking ball in her home. But she can also be like a termite. I don't know if you've had those in your home. Tiny little microscopic insect that you don't actually see, but they damage the structure little by little. And if the homeowner doesn't take care of those termites, their home's going to be destroyed. So 
That kind of destruction can happen if we're not diligent to bring our hearts to the word of God. And the more our eyes are turned to Jesus, the more diligently we pursue knowing him, the more we gaze upon his character, the more we grow in holiness, and the more we bless those in our homes. I don't think anyone here would willingly say she wants to tear down her own home. But when our aim is not to glorify God, but it's to glorify ourselves, it's exactly what we're doing. So the foolish woman is driven by personal desire rather than the glory of God. And God's glory is a battle, and we must fight for it. When I was in high school, I participated in a fundraiser, um, and it was a 180-mile bike ride um, from Death Valley to Mount Whitney in California, which I don't know if you know California geography, but Death Valley is really low, and Mount Whitney is really high. So you're going uphill the whole way. Um, and it was really hard, <laughs> and it's really hard to get started on a hill. And when you're on a hill, if you stop pedaling, you always roll backwards. So the same goes for our battle against selfishness and impatience. Or maybe when someone in your home says something contrary to your desires or your plans or your opinions. And we must respond in a way that brings glory to God. We, we glorify God when our response displays his patience and his kindness. So we must prepare for battle. And we must always be aware of our hearts so that when we're bumped, what spills out is the good that is stored up in our hearts because we've purposed to know Christ and his character. As women, we have the power to bless and build up the lives of those in our homes, but we also have the power to tear down and destroy them. So because of that new heart we've been given as believers, we are called wise. And, and we know while the power of sin has been broken, the penalty of sin has been paid, the presence of sin still remains. We have sin's residue in our hearts. And I don't know if you're like me, but do you ever feel like you're becoming more and more sinful as you grow in the Lord? Thankfully, that's because of the grace of God. Uh, he makes us more and more aware of our sin as we learn about God and we grow in love for him. And I think it's a gift that he doesn't reveal all our sin at once. And I think it's a gift that he's faithful to slowly and patiently show us where we need to repent and turn from our sin. So when we see the word fool, there's two things we can think of. A fool is the one whose only hope is for God to give him a new heart. But a fool is also the one who knows God, but is acting foolishly in this moment because her flesh is ruling. So believers in Jesus will display some deeds of the flesh, again, because of this mixed condition but we're not to be characterized by them. Our lives are to most often be characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. We talked about those before, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So the book of Proverbs helps us to evaluate that residue of foolishness that's still remaining in our hearts. And God reveals that sin so that we can pursue him and holiness for his glory. So everyone has a home. Some of you live with your parents. Some of you live with siblings or children or husbands or roommates. And some of you live alone. But everyone's living situation is a season. And seasons always change. So let's look at Proverbs 14.1 again. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. So the wise woman, while being fully dependent on God and his word, that's discipline one, figuratively speaking, builds up the prosperity of her household. 
So number one on your outline is wise women in Proverbs. So Proverbs is full of descriptions of a wise woman. I don't have them all listed here. Um, we would be here all day. I just have a few and we're going to go through them. Proverbs eleven sixteen says, a gracious woman attains honor. Nineteen fourteen, a prudent wife is from the Lord. Thirty one ten, an excellent wife who can find, for her worth is far above rubies. And thirty one thirty, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. So what makes this woman, this wise woman, excellent? The fear of the Lord, or the fear of Yahweh. So wise is often seen in two ways. This is letter A. The wise woman listens well. She has an eagerness to receive instruction as well as rebuke. Proverbs 8.33, a wise woman heeds instruction and does not neglect it. And 9.8 says, she loves the one who reproves her. So does that describe us? When I was learning to drive, I drove a VW Bug, and I don't know if you've ever driven one, um, they have giant blind spots. You, you, when, when you're making a right or a left or changing lanes or doing anything, I never actually knew what was in my blind spot. And I had no way to see unless someone told me, yeah, you can go, it's safe. So that's the very definition of a blind spot. We can't see. We can't see what's in it. We don't know. And that's why God uses others in our lives to help us, someone to tell us what's in that blind spot. It's good for us. So we can be an instrument in each other's lives and and we can fulfill God's purpose and we should welcome that help in our pursuit of Christ, even though it's hard. So Proverbs 10, 8 and 15, 31, this is repeated twice. A wise woman receives commands and she listens to life-giving reproof, unlike the babbling fool, which only leads to ruin. 1920 says, a wise woman listens to counsel and accepts discipline. 9.9, nine, a wise woman, when taught, will become wiser still. And 8.34, a wise woman listens to wisdom. So a teachable spirit begins with a humble spirit. It's a spirit that recognizes that we are the greatest of sinners. And a teachable spirit is descriptive of a woman who knows that she needs to change and she needs to grow. And she's eager to do so. So she listens well. And sometimes this includes inviting others to speak into our lives, maybe asking them what they see that needs attention that maybe we don't see. So a second way that wisdom is seen is that a wise woman speaks wisely. Proverbs 16, 23, the heart of the wise instructs his mouth. And our familiar wellspring verse, Proverbs 4, 23, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. So your mouth is a reflection of your heart. And likewise, your mouth is able to be restrained by your heart. That's why it's so important to guard your heart. So this goes back to what I was talking about earlier with that cup of coffee being bumped. What comes out? Challenges are going to come. You're going to sin. I'm going to sin. We're going to be sinned against and trials will come and whatever is in our hearts will be revealed. So let's look at what the Bible has to say about our words. Proverbs 10.19 says, A wise woman restrains her lips. 12.18, A wise woman isn't rash. Instead, she brings healing. And 13.14, A wise woman's teaching is a fountain of life. 14.3, 
a wise woman's lips protect. 15.2 says, a wise woman makes knowledge acceptable. And 15.7, her lips spread knowledge. So those verses show us that a wise woman must first guard her heart so that what comes out of her mouth is thoughtful, helpful, protective, instructive, and winsome. I think we would all agree that we are sinners and we live with sinners. So the question is, how will I respond? Will I build up or will I tear down? And God has graciously given us everything we need to listen well, to respond right, and to speak wisely. All right, so now we know what Proverbs has to say about the wise woman, what she looks like and what she sounds like, and how she can build up her home. But Proverbs also speaks about many ways that we can tear down our homes. So number two on your outline is the foolish woman in Proverbs. So A right underneath that is the foolish woman is sexually immoral. So God calls for us to be pure. And that means that we view others as brothers and sisters. We seek to speak, to act, to dress and to even think in a way that does them good and to help them see Christ in us, spurs them on to love God and for them to be pure. And the only relationship to go beyond that is if we're married, and it's that relationship with that one man, and in that context, sex is good, it's not immoral, it's pure, and it's God-honoring. But bringing sex or being sexually provocative or immodest in our dress, or even thinking sinfully, sexually, about any other person is immoral. And like any other sin, sexual immorality is birthed in our hearts. And even if we think we aren't behaving in a way that is immoral, we still need to check our hearts. And we can ask ourselves questions like, where are my affections? What do I desire that I shouldn't? Uh, Am I content with what God has given me or not given me? Am I conducting myself in a way that is loving in my dress, in my conduct, or in my speech? So those kinds of questions can help us identify if there's any roots of sexual immorality in our hearts. And we must guard our hearts and our minds by being careful what we watch or what we read. There's a lot of worldly views that penetrate our entertainment, TV, movies, books, even social media. And we cannot let that kind of entertainment entertain us. We must not be entertained by what Christ died for. So there's some more verses on your outline under there. And for the sake of time, we're not going to be able to go through all of them this morning, but uh, feel free to go back and look at them on your own. We're going to move on to letter B. The foolish woman is idle. Idle. I-D-L-E. Not (laughs) I-D-O-L. Laziness and idleness tear down our homes, and they're characteristics of a foolish woman. Proverbs 10.4 says, Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. So laziness is opting for what's comfortable for ourselves rather than what's best for others. And maybe one way this can be seen is in the discipline of our children. My eye must be on what's best for my child and not my own pleasure or comfort. Laziness or idleness is believing that good things should come our way without having to work to get them. And it's a willingness to permit ourselves to not do things that we know we should. So again, we don't have time to go through all of those verses. There are some listed there. Feel free to go back later and look through them. 
<clears throat> we're going to move on to letter C. The foolish woman is contentious. <clears throat> so contentious means to be quarrelsome, to be given an angry debate, strife, or discord. <clears throat> when I first did this lesson, our master bathroom faucet leaked. It had leaked for like a year. And it doesn't leak anymore because it got fixed last week. So it was just this tiny slow drip. And it only happened when the faucet was turned to warm. So I would always have to go over and turn it to cold so that it would stop leaking. But sometimes I would forget. And sometimes I would get in bed and I'd be really tired and I'd be laying awake and in the dark, all I could hear was this drip, drip, drip. And I, I had to get out of bed and turn it off. So <clears throat> Proverbs 19.13 uses that same illustration. And it says the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. <clears throat> so that kind of foolish, repetitive behavior has made you only background noise that exhausts the patience of your household and it results in tearing it down. Proverbs 21.9 says, it's better to live in the corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. And then the same chapter, verse 19 says, it's better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. So vexing means to provoke, to stir up, to debate in anger. And it might look like someone who has to have the last word. Proverbs 27, 15 and 16 says, A constant dripping on a day of steady rain, and the contentious woman are alike. He who would restrain her restrains the wind, and he grasps oil with his right hand. So I know um, we're familiar with the Israelites. You've heard about them before. You've read about them. They saw God do wondrous miracles, and they still grumbled, and they still complained. And they are a sobering example of contentiousness. So turn to Exodus 17. We're going to talk about these Israelites. Exodus 17, verses 1, starting at 1, and we'll go from there. So then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidium, and there was not water for the people to drink. Okay, so the Israelites have a real need. They need water, but their real problem was their response to that need. Look at verse 2. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? So do you ever find yourself responding like that? Grumbling and complaining? Grumbling and complaining are signs of contention, and they will tear down our homes and our relationships when our hearts are filled with discontent. But thankfulness, cultivated in our hearts, kills contentiousness. And there's always something to be thankful for when you know Christ. You can think on all that he has done for you as a believer. <clears throat> you can think on what you truly deserve. You can think on all that he has given to you. So God is always at work in our lives and in our circumstances, and God is always good, so we can trust him. So what can we learn from the Israelites? Here are the blanks to fill out on your outline. <clears throat> Genuine need does not excuse a sinful response. Genuine need does not excuse a sinful response. And then the next one, 
Contentiousness breeds more sin. <clears throat> Grumbling, fear, and accusations. One sin always leads to another, and sin has companions. Complaining fails to acknowledge what is true about God and his faithfulness. So the Greener Grass Conspiracy, highly recommended book, calls complaining telling a lie about God. We're not trusting God's goodness when we complain, and we're not trusting that what God has for us in this very moment is his best for us. We're not believing that he actually cares for us or that he's at work for our good. So in that moment, it will do us good to again look at the cross. Preach the gospel to ourselves. Remember, God has provided for our greatest need in salvation. And life isn't easy, it's hard, but no matter what we face, we can be confident and comforted that each circumstance we're in has passed through our Lord's hand. And he loves us and he is working all things for our good and for his glory. So think back to those Israelites that we were talking about before. They wandered in the desert for 40 years and God was faithful. And yet they still continued to be contentious. So let's look at some characteristics of contentiousness now. Contention is stirred up by anger. Proverbs 29:22, a man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. And then 15:18 says, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. So contention is also stirred up by arrogance. 28:25 says, a greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts the Lord will be enriched. And by gossip, 26:20, for lack of wood the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. So we know that contention creates defensiveness. 18:19 says, a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city and contentions are like the bars of a citadel. So, when a city would be under attack, the people in the city would bar themselves in for protection. But that kind of defensive action in our homes only brings division. And when there is contention, and one party hides away, whether it be emotionally or physically or spiritually, there's withdrawal from each other. And it's important that when we encounter anger or withdrawal, in a relationship that we try to look behind those behaviors to discern what the real issue is. So <clears throat> instead of defending ourselves, maybe we can try something like this. I've just realized how concerned and hurt you must be about whatever your situation is. Please help me understand more clearly your point of view so we can work together on this. And the more quickly that we address each other's anger with gentleness and kindness and the love of Christ, the more often we'll see a positive result that glorifies the Lord. And that's what we want, right? So who sitting here can say they've not been hurt by someone else's words? And who hasn't regretted something that they've said? <laughs> and who among us can say, my words are always appropriate for the situation and they're always kindly spoken? Not me. So Proverbs also provides warnings directed at the home. You'll see there Proverbs 17:1. Better is a dry morsel and quietness than a house full of feasting with strife. 
21.9 and 25.24, we've already talked about this, it's better to live in the corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. So what can we do? Next on our outline, we must forsake contention. That first blank you have there is forsake. So communication is about the words that we say, but it's just as much about the words we choose not to say, and maybe the tone and the timing of the words we do say. And we need to refuse to let our talk be driven by our passions or our personal desires rather than God's purposes. That is forsaking contention. Sanctification is the process of becoming more like Christ, but have you considered what sanctification will cost you? Are you prepared to forsake contention, to forsake grumbling and complaining when we don't agree or understand what God is doing? So God has promised to finish the work that he began in us, and that work that he began, began in salvation, and the ongoing work is the process of sanctification, of us being renewed day by day. When gold is refined, they take the gold and they heat it up to melting, and then they scoop the dross or the impurities off the top, and they cool it off, and they heat it up again, and scoop the impurities off, and cool it off, and they do it over and over and over again. And God is in the process of refining us. But we can't demand instant change in one another, just like we can't demand pure gold without heat and time and patience. We still live in a fallen world, and there will be disappointment and hurt and failure and sin, and we will be sinned against. But uh, Galatians 5 helps show us how to choose our words carefully so as to forsake contention. So let's turn there together. Galatians 5. Galatians 5, we're going to read verse 13. <clears throat> Galatians 5, 13 says, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So let's take a second to evaluate. Are our relationships shaped by love? Are they showing us in the servant posture? Are we asking God to reveal to us how we can be used to encourage one another and to spur one another on to love and good deeds? And are we making it our aim to look for ways to comfort, to encourage, to warn, or to teach each other? When we are faced with a difficult relationship, I think it's important to view that difficulty as an opportunity to minister in the grace of God. We have a choice to make in that moment of disagreement, and we should seek to serve and not be served. And that is what builds up our home and our church body. James 4, this is a familiar passage. James 4, 1 through 2 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? <clears throat> you desire and do not have. So either we're living as a servant of the Lord, accepting his call to serve those around us, or we're living to gratify the cravings of our sinful nature. And we're expecting others to satisfy those cravings as well. So still in Galatians 5, let's look back at verse 14, just below where we were before. <coughs> For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the problems that we encounter in relationships are not simply horizontal 
person-to-person relationships, they're fundamentally vertical. It's person-to-God. If I'm living for God's glory, if my love for him stands above my love for anyone or anything else, including myself, then my practical goal in life will be to please God in everything I do, everything I say, and wherever he puts me. And one sure fruit of that heart is that I will love my neighbor as myself. So, in contrast, when a desire for an idol replaces a love for God, the result will be conflict in my relationships. I might begin to view others as obstacles for what I desire, something other than God. So conflict has vertical roots that produce horizontal fruit of fighting and quarreling. But love for God makes me want to keep his law, and that will always result in practical love toward whoever's in my home, my husband, my child, my roommate, my parent, anyone I live with. We're still in Galatians 5, so look at verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So when we live for ourselves, and we don't live for God. We bite and devour one another. We're willing to chew someone up to satisfy our own appetites. And when our hearts are not ruled by the law of love, but maybe by sinful demands or desires, we become angry and disappointed with one another. And then we'll destroy one another with our words. Communication is intended to build up. It's intended to strengthen. It's intended to encourage and change at the heart level fundamentally alters how we speak to one another. So still Galatians 5, down below, 16 and 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So as long as indwelling sin remains, there will be a war within our hearts, And we must always be aware of that conflict because for us to forget the presence of indwelling sin immediately leads to destructive talk. And I think all of us wrestle with conflicting desires. When when something goes wrong, we may desire an appropriate godly solution, but there's other desires operating as well. We might also desire to shift blame or to separate ourselves from responsibility. We might desire to rehearse in our minds all the other times this person has failed us or to hurt that person as they're hurting us. And we might desire to share the failure of this person with someone else. But we can build up our homes when we say no to any of that kind of communication that flows from those desires. Building up our homes means refusing to speak in any way that is contrary to what the Spirit is seeking to produce in me and in others, as we find in his word. And if I'm seeking to live consistently with the Spirit's work in me and not give room for the enemy, I must be willing to examine my talk with the mirror of the word of God. When your child is sick, you pay attention to their symptoms. When your car is making a funny noise, you listen carefully so you can tell the person who's going to fix it what's wrong with it. So pay attention to your heart through the lens of God's word. You can ask yourselves questions like, how do I respond and why? What's going on in this heart of mine? And are the words coming out of my mouth that originate in my heart, are they words of anger, bitterness, or judgment? And what am I not receiving that I think I'm entitled to? And why is it creating such anger 
in me. <clears throat> and by the way, side note, giving the cold shoulder or just not speaking, but silently stewing in sinful bitterness, it's just as damaging because they're all rooted in the heart. So maybe at this point you're feeling a little discouraged and maybe this is something you know you struggle with and you're feeling a little overwhelmed at the thought of needing to examine your heart so deeply and so regularly. Consider Romans 8. We should be familiar with it. We're there every Sunday. Romans 8, um, verses 5 through 11, but particularly right now I'm going to read 10 and 11. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I don't know how many of you remember last year when Scott was teaching through Romans 6, um, when he was in verses 16 through 18. I highly recommend going back and listening to it. It should be online. But do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So that verse is telling us we don't have to sin. We're free from it. So when we're faced with that choice of responding in a sinful, contentious way or choosing righteousness, we're free to choose to honor God. And we don't have to live under the control of our old sinful nature. We can have joy. We can examine ourselves in joy because we realize we have the presence of the indwelling spirit. So let's look at difficulties in life as sovereignly given opportunities to see fruit matured by God's grace. And difficulties are not obstacles to the development of spiritual fruit. They're opportunities for us to see it grow. So it's never the loudness of our voice or the power of our words or maybe the drama of the moment or the strength of our vocabulary that will cause people to change. God can use whispered words to produce thunderous conviction in a heart. Gentleness flows from knowing God and his power. And gentle talk does not come from a person who is angry or looking to settle the score. It comes from a person who is speaking not because of what he wants from you, but what he wants for you. Gentle talk comes when we're not speaking out of personal hurt or anger or bitterness, but out of self-sacrificing love. Not because of how your sin is affecting me, but because it's ensnared you, and I want to see you freed from its snare. So we're not to be on a mission of selfish confrontation, but loving rescue. So your next blank, besides forsaking contention, we must also fight contention. And we can fight against the sin of contention by remembering God's character. He can only ever be kind and good. Always think the best. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says, Love hopes all things. Don't underestimate your sinfulness. 1 Timothy 1.15 is written there. It says, It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. Ask the Lord to show you what pleases him in your speech and what does not. Then we can align our hearts with his and seek him for his grace to renew our minds. 
Cultivate a heart of thankfulness. Just look around you. Give thanks in all things. Maybe spend some time in Philippians or 1 Thessalonians. And then continue to look in scripture for instruction in God-honoring speech. So now that we've gotten to this point, let's take a moment to evaluate our own hearts. So number three there on your outline is self-evaluation. Which of these phrases can you say apply to you? I frequently express gratitude for the benefits that I've received from God and others. Or, I frequently grumble about having what I don't want or wanting what I don't have. I build others up with words of praise, appreciation, and admiration. Or, I often hurt others with critical, belittling words. I'm quick to point out the failure of others. I think sarcasm can fit in here because words can build up and words can destroy. I'm quick to humble myself and seek forgiveness when I'm wronged someone. Or I tend to defend or justify myself rather than admitting when I'm wrong. I am faithful in praying for God to work in others' lives, like my husband or my children or my friends or my parents. Or I spend more time talking to friends or counselors about needs in the lives of those around me than I do in fervent intercessory prayer on their behalf. When provoked, I generally respond with a gentle answer, or I'm easily provoked, and I tend to respond with harsh words. So, like the rudder of a ship is very small in comparison to the size of the vessel, our tongues are a very little part of our body. James 3.5 says, So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. Our tongue must be yielded to God as a tool of righteousness. So thinking back to Romans 6, when we were there last year, Romans 6, 12 through 13 says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So when we're wise with our words, we're placing our trust in God. We're confident in his faithfulness to work for his glory and our good. So we can remember Christ's example. In 1 Peter 2.23, it says, And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So you and I can build up our homes when we want what's best for others. And that just shows us again how desperately we need God and his word continually so we can make our hearts ready to respond that way and to always be pleasing to the Lord. We must seek to be peacemakers and to be reconcilers. And building up our homes means choosing our words carefully. Now, if you've gotten here and you feel like you want to give up, don't. Don't get overwhelmed. This might seem hard, but number four, we have gospel hope. Number four is gospel hope. So let's turn to 1 Peter together. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
by his wounds you have been healed. So another part of shepherding our hearts throughout the day is thinking on and praising the Lord for his character and for the gospel. So we're all familiar with the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God sent Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin and for my sin, for your sin, and for the sin of all who would believe. And the gospel gives us a relationship with God based on the sinless life and sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ. The gospel also frees us to honestly face and acknowledge our sin. If we don't see our sin, if we don't acknowledge our sin, we don't see our need for him, and we'll continue to trust in self-righteousness. The gospel also reminds us that God no longer counts that sin against us. Our Father is a kind and loving master, but sin, left unchecked, or maybe like swept under a rug or hidden in a closet, looks okay. But it's like smoldering embers, and it will soon erupt into a huge fire, and our homes will be destroyed in an instant. So tearing down our homes takes time, little by little, like those termites, or in big chunks like the wrecking ball. Great damage like that takes time to rebuild. And Romans 12.2 tells us, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So filling our minds with the world's thoughts, like being disappointed or annoyed or prideful, it will only make disappointed or annoyed or prideful words come out of our mouths. And God's word calls us to renew our minds, Romans 12, 2, to think like Christ. And that's what shepherding our hearts throughout the day needs to look like. So we can be women who speak kind, helpful words. Christ has equipped us to speak in a way that builds up because we've been bought with a great price. And the gospel is a call to forsake living according to the cravings of our sinful nature so that we can live for Christ. So let's pursue Christ diligently so that we can be wise women, so that our affections are for him, our service is for him, and our trust is in him, so that our homes can be built up for his glory. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth found in it. Thank you that it causes conviction in our hearts. Father, thank you for your gospel, for salvation, that we have been freed from our sin, that we can speak in such a way that brings you glory, that we can fight our sin, we can put off words of annoyance and pride because we want to glorify you, that we can love those that we come into contact with, with our words, the way that we treat them. Father, I pray that this morning your word is honored through our discussion group times. God, that we desire to be women who bring you glory in the way that we care for those in our homes. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the ladies that are here. Thank you for the discussion group leaders. Pray that this time is profitable and glorifying to you. In your name, amen.